Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome in, everybody, to episode 201 of the podcast in a sweeping America, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It is another great show today. As I've told you a few times now, it is really kind of that really fun time of year where we're going to bounce back between football and basketball. Obviously, we'll start today's show with football. We'll kind of clear up the playoff picture. The big news, of course, is Herm Edwards, you play to win the game. His Arizona State Wildcats upset Oregon. That potentially shook things up. And I would add, Oklahoma did not look very good. So I'm going to tell you where I think the playoff picture stands, why I actually think this is proof that we don't need to expand the playoff. And also, uh, I'll probably wrap a little bit with the USC stuff. I think the USC scenario is very interesting. As I record here on Sunday, their season is over. Clay Helton is still the head coach at USC, but the Trojans finish 8-4, and four, and I think USC is in kind of a very interesting scenario right now in terms of what do they do going forward. There is not an easy answer. Do you let go of Clay Helton? Do you not? I'm going to get into a little bit of that. We'll wrap with some basketball. My UConn Huskies are awesome again. Well, maybe not quite, but they are definitely ter- uh, trending in the right direction. I thought that was the big story from the weekend. And I'll also preview Feast Week. We got some good college hoops over the weekend. As I said, UConn playing well in uh, Charleston, Myrtle Beach, fun tournament. But the big boy tournaments start this week. Maui is this week. The Bahamas uh, at Battle for Atlantis is this week. So I'm going to tell you what the games are, what you need to watch, all that kind of stuff. We will wrap on Feast Week. And you'll listen to this probably while watching Feast Week basketball because this is the most awesome week of the, the I don't want to say the entire calendar year. But let's be honest, outside of Champ Week and the first week of the NCAA tournament, it doesn't really get much better than Feast Week, which is coming up all the big college basketball tournaments. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everybody, please subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. You can do it on Podbean. I always forget to do this, but Podcast Addict, if you have an Android, if you don't use Apple Podcasts, go ahead. Podcast Addict is the place to listen to. As I mentioned, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, basically wherever you listen to this show or wherever you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe to this show. Also, make sure to rate and review. Give us a quick five stars. Help us out. Let us know. And of course, finally, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast Instagram page, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram, posting all kinds of stuff there, including my College Hoops Top 25, which came out on Monday morning. A couple other housekeeping notes before we get into the college football stuff. Uh, As I've mentioned a few times, 
If you're going to be in Vegas for the CBS Sports Classic, it's of course coming up end of December. Kentucky plays Ohio State. UCLA plays North Carolina. Let me know. I'm keeping a running tally of people that are going to be there. We're going to try to do some kind of get-together, some kind of fan event, a happy hour, something fun for the listeners of the podcast. You come down, you hang out, all that fun stuff. If you're going to be in Vegas that weekend, let me know if it comes together. And I actually think that it will. I should have some details here by uh, hopefully shortly after Thanksgiving. So let me know. Again, uh, you can hit me up at Aaron Torres Podcast Questions. Hit me on Twitter. Hit me up on Instagram DMs. Wherever you want to communicate with me, just let me know. I'm trying to keep a list going, and I I will, of course, get you details as we get closer. Uh, One or two more housekeeping notes real quick. One, if you want to help the show in addition to what we're already doing, there is a new way to do that. So on my own personal homepage, AaronTorresOnline.com, there is a link at the bottom of the page for Amazon. I know many of you are going, many of you shop on Amazon already, but if you're shopping on Amazon at all, whether it's today, tomorrow, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, click that link, AaronTorresOnline.com. You have to st- You have to scroll all the way to the bottom. There is a, lo- a link for Amazon, and if you click that link, Uh, Any purchase that you make uh, comes back to this show. We get a little bit of a kickback from all the people that we refer to Amazon. It's a referral program, all that stuff. It it sounds silly, but it really does start to add up. So if you're using Amazon, give it a quick, quick, quick click. Make your purchase. For the record, I can't see what you're purchasing. If you're purchasing some weird stuff for what you do behind the scenes when I'm not around, listen, that's between you and the, the big guy upstairs, okay? Not my business, don't care, but click that link, Amazon. It really does help the show. Every little bit that you purchase, a little bit will come back to the show. Finally, want to give a quick shout out to my boy, Nick Coffey. Um, I don't know how many of you guys follow him on Twitter, at The Card Connect. Uh, he's also on Instagram at The Card Connect. But Nick is uh, an invaluable contributor to what we do. And as I mentioned last show, I really would like to get him on, but there's a reason that he hasn't been on, and that is because Nick announced last week that he and his wife are having baby number two. So a little coffee is on the way here. Uh, A little Nick coffee is on the way. He is uh, having baby number two. I'm so happy for him. I'm so happy for his family. And listen, we're going to try to continue to get Nick on as much as we can. I am also realistic in that he does a show seven to 10 every day. He does, um, you know, all sorts of stuff at his regular job. He now has baby number two on the way. I don't know how much he will be on, but obviously every chance that we get to have him, we will have Nick on. But one, if you're wondering where he is, that's what he's doing. Two, uh, if you want to give him a quick shout out, uh, The Card Connect on Twitter. He's having baby number two. I'm very happy for him. He he has been such a, a good friend, a good resource. And again, I'm just, I'm just thrilled. I'm so happy for him. I'm so happy that he is expanding his family. So give him a quick shout out. And of course, anytime that we can get him on, we will. By the way, I should mention, I got a couple other really good guests lined up here for late November, early December. It's just that time of year where it's hard to track people down. Everybody's kind of traveling and doing family stuff. We will get guests. I promise every episode isn't going to be AT rambling for 45 minutes straight. Hopefully I'm still entertaining, but I promise you we're going to get some guests here to spice things up in the coming weeks. All right, enough. Let's talk some college football because obviously the playoff picture was completely shaken up on Saturday. The big result is the one that everybody is talking about right now. Oregon 
as I mentioned, they go to Tempe. Herm Edwards, you play to win the game. Well, guess who won the game? Guess who played to win the game? Herm Edwards played to win the game. Arizona upsets number six Oregon. And the college football playoff picture is completely shaken up. So this is the big story in college football. And this was the big game on Saturday. Obviously, look, Ohio State-Penn State was the biggest game on the schedule. But as we know, Ohio State dominated that game. Not their best effort, but enough to kind of survive in advance. They will now play Michigan this week. They'll play in the Big Ten Championship game next week. But the story out of this weekend was Oregon. And so if you watch the game, and I know I always say if you watch the game, but but for people who didn't, quick rundown, it was just one of those nights where it felt like it just wasn't Oregon's night, right? They open the game, drive down the field, they go up 7 nothing, and you're like, okay, they're good, they're golden. And then all of a sudden the game kind of goes on, they, they can't really get anything going in the passing game, they can't really get anything going in the run game, they have to punt. Arizona State stalling, not doing too well. All of a sudden, Arizona Arizona State pops off a big play. It's 7-7. Then all of a sudden, Arizona State's up 14-7. And next thing you know, Oregon's offense has not moved the ball at all, and it's 24-7 going into the fourth quarter. Oregon ended up rallying. It wasn't enough. Arizona, Arizona State popped one final massive play with the final score uh, coming 31 to 24. Arizona State upsetting Oregon, the number six team in the country. And so, listen, it goes without saying. I'm not going to spend a ton of time breaking down the X's and O's, but what you need to know is very simply this this has completely shaken up the playoff picture because, as I talked about on the last episode, Oregon was very much a team that I thought by the end of the season, if they won out, if they went 12-1, and they were going, I really truly believe, to get into the college football playoff. Now look, I know there was always going to be some debate. Alabama, if they win this weekend against Auburn, they would have the win against Auburn. Oregon would have a loss against Auburn. And you kind of sit there and say, okay, like, you know, what's the mix? But Oregon, of course, losing completely shakes up everything. And so now... It's obviously, look, Oregon's out of the playoff picture. I don't think there's really anything that can happen short of every team losing multiple games over the next two weeks for Oregon to get back in. And I also think it hurts the entire Pac-12 because if you watch the Pac-12 this year, you know that while Utah is very good, I think they're the fourth best team in the country right now, they really don't have the resume to back up uh, a fourth spot as of right now. And they were a team that really needed Oregon to advance to the Pac-12 championship game for both teams to be 11-1. And then the team that was 11-1, it felt like, okay, whoever ends up winning this game, they're going to get that final playoff spot. And so this was a tough day for the Pac-12, certainly a tough day for Oregon. I'd add, I think it was a pretty tough day for Justin Herbert, too. I mean, this is a guy that we have heard so much hype about him being a potential uh, top 10 NFL draft pick, potentially the number one pick, especially now that Tua Tonga-Viola is hurt. And I got to be honest, I just don't see it. This is a guy that from the beginning, since he's really emerged as an elite prospect, um, let's be honest, he hasn't played well in big games. I said it on the show, or I said it on Twitter, I think I've said it on the show before, he's kind of college Kirk Cousins, right? Looks good, big, strong, athletic, throws the ball all over the field, but then you get in a big game, in a big moment, and he doesn't come through, and it was much the same on Saturday night. Now, I know he rallied the team late, but listen, Arizona State is not an elite team. This was not a team that he should have struggled against. 
And after the first quarter, he basically struggled until his team was down so far that it was basically impossible to come back. And so I know we don't talk a ton of NFL draft stuff on this show, but I think it's kind of an important thing to discuss as we get uh, out of the college football season is we have a lot of Tennessee Titans fans who listen to this show. We have a lot of Cincinnati Bengals fans who listen to this show. I don't know how many Miami Dolphins fans we have or Chicago Bears fans we have, but this is a guy that people are talking about as the potential number one pick in the draft. And I'll say this. I know all these quarterbacks have question marks. How healthy can Tua Tonga-Viola stay? Is Joe Burrow that good or is this a season-long aberration? Is it the system? Is it that LSU so much better than everybody else? But I think Justin Herbert, there's some now real questions about him, how he handles things in big games. But again, it, that's in the bigger picture. It's just something that I think about as I think about all of the ramifications of this game. But I'll tell you, I think this was a very bad loss for Oregon. I, it, I don't think. It was a very bad loss for Oregon. It completely shakes up the playoff picture, and it has eliminated Oregon from the Pac-12 playoff picture, and I think it really actually, let me start again. It has eliminated Oregon from the playoff picture. I think it really hurts the Pac-12 in the playoff picture. I'm tripping over my own words here, and I think it even hurts Utah if Utah wins out. So that is the big piece. I would add, as we also talk about the rest of the Saturday in college football, not a great day for the Oklahoma Sooners either. Oklahoma, at the very least, you can say won 28-24. They did beat TCU. But if you watch the game, Oklahoma, as they have the last couple weeks, they jump out to a 14-0 lead. They're looking good. You think, okay, they've finally turned the corner. It's been a couple bad weeks of football. And then they fall apart over the last three quarters. They were outscored 24-14 to over the final three quarters by TCU. They did end up winning 28-24. to But if you watch the game, one, it was another bad performance by Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts had a interception return like 98 yards for a touchdown. He fumbled uh, as he was running into the end zone to cost Oklahoma points for the second straight week. He did it against Baylor. And if you really think about the big picture of college football uh, or of, of the Oklahoma season, this is now the fourth straight week that Oklahoma has not looked good. And so we're going to get into who's in position to get that fourth spot. I think we all agree that Clemson, LSU, and Ohio State in some order are one, two, and three. But as we talk about teams battling for that fourth spot, Oklahoma is not putting their best foot forward in terms of trying to make the argument that they deserve to be in the college football playoff. As I said, this was the fourth week in a row that they have not looked good. If you go back, obviously four weeks ago, if you look on the calendar, they lost to Kansas State. That was obviously the game where if you watch it, or at the very least if you remember, they gave up close to 50 points. That defense that has been so good early in the season let them down. They lose 48-41 to to Kansas State. They go into a bye, you think, okay, they're going to turn a corner. They got a week off. They'll figure it out. What ends up happening? They beat Iowa State, credit to them, but they were up going into the fourth quarter. They give up 20 unanswered points going into uh, in the fourth quarter. And so all of a sudden, they end up winning the game 42-41, to 41, but they gave up 20 points in the fourth quarter. Next week is Baylor. Again, we know the drill. They fall down 28-3. Insert your own Atlanta Falcons jokes here. But 
They've rallied to win, but again, they don't look good. And then, of course, there is Saturday where, as I said, they were up 14 to nothing. They get outscored 24 to 14 over the final three quarters. And this just does not look like a college football playoff team to me. And so I will say this. I think the Oregon result, Oregon losing, I think Oklahoma struggling for the fourth straight week. I do think it proves something that I've been saying for years. And if you listen to this show, you guys know. I have a couple stances in life, right? Like one, you guys know where I stand on the NCAA. I think the NCAA, for the most part, they do pretty good. It's not perfect. It's not great. Nothing's perfect. But they do pretty well given the circumstances. There are other stances that I, I, I believe. I, you know, you guys listen, you know all of them. But one of the stances that I definitively believe is that the college football playoff is actually perfect at four teams. And every, everyone else in the media wants to expand this thing, and we got to go to eight, and we got to get in all the conference champions, and what about the group of five? No. Here is the bottom line. Four is the perfect number, and this is the year, once again, that it's proof. Because think about it. I just said it a minute ago. The top three teams are indisputable at this point, Ohio State, LSU, and Clemson. But after that, I don't even know if we're going to get a fourth team that's qualified. Oregon lost. Oklahoma's looked terrible for four straight weeks. Baylor's in the mix, but who have they beaten at this point? Alabama's banged up. Georgia's going to lose in the SEC championship game. Georgia can't even move the football right now. So you're telling me one of those teams deserves to be in the college football playoff? Now look, if Utah wins, and we're going to get to Utah in a minute, if they win out, I think they actually deserve the fourth spot. By the way, not just because I picked them to, to make the college football playoff in the preseason, and as I tweeted on Sunday morning, uh, you will never hear the end of that if I end up uh, if Utah ends up making the college football playoff because I picked him in the preseason. But the point I'm trying to make, we spend so much time arguing, oh, we got to go to eight, get all five conference champs. We can't even find four teams that are qualified. Heck, you go back to last year. Let's be honest. If you think back to last year, first of all, we got the right four teams. Georgia did not deserve to be in the college football playoff at 11-2 and two with losses to their two biggest opponents that they played at LSU and, and Alabama in the SEC championship game. Ohio State didn't deserve to be in because they struggled throughout the year. They had a 30 or 40 point loss to Purdue. We got the four teams right last year in Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, and Oklahoma. And even in that playoff, it was obvious within the first two playoff games that it really, we didn't even need four teams. It was Alabama and Clemson. And then Clemson dominates, and they were clearly the best team in college football. And so it just drives me bananas that we spend all season long, oh, we got to go to eight. We, this is so unfair. This doesn't make sense. How are we going to fit? And then we get to this point in the year, and every single year, every single year, we see that, you know what? Actually, we really don't need more teams than we already have. And we're there again this year. Oregon just lost. Oklahoma looks bad. I would be stunned if Oklahoma ends up winning the next two games. They play uh, at Oklahoma State this weekend, who's playing really well right now. And then they're going to play Baylor again in the conference championship. I don't think they're going to win the next two games. But even if they do, they're not playing like a team that is worthy right now. I mentioned Georgia. I mentioned Bama. Maybe Utah. But we're going to struggle to get four. And I would add this. If we expand to eight, you know what the crazy part is? We're just expanding for the sake of expanding. And this is my number one argument against expansion. If we're going to expand 
all we're doing is adding more games for the sake of adding more games because there are not four more there are not four more teams that are worthy of competing for a championship and it's not going to enhance the college football playoff and this is the example I use every year we have three teams that are definitively better than everybody else Clemson LSU Ohio State well guess what there is no team that is going to be left out of the playoff this year whether it's Oregon whether it's Bama without Tua whether it's Georgia whether it's Penn State whether it's Michigan whether it's Minnesota whoever it is There is not a single team that is going to get left out of the playoff that is good enough to win the championship. And so to me, there is not a team that is good enough that can beat in back-to-back games, can beat LSU and Ohio State, or can beat Ohio State and Clemson, or can beat Ohio State and LSU, whoever. There is not a team that is going to miss the playoff that is good enough to win the championship. So listen, part of this show is me telling you stuff that nobody else in the media is going to tell you, and this is one. The media is going to bang the drum about we got to expand the playoff and we got to do this. No, be smart at your Christmas parties, at Thanksgiving dinner, when your stepdad's arguing with you, oh, we got to expand the playoff. You tell him, stepdad, shut up, bro. Shut up. Put the wine down. Put the champagne down. Eat some turkey. Shut your mouth. You don't know what you're talking about. Because, because, think about the teams that are going to get left out. None of them are good enough to win the championship. It's not going to enhance the college football playoff to add more games that are going to be blowouts. What do I need to put Penn State in the playoff for? They couldn't beat Ohio State. They couldn't beat Minnesota. They're a good team. They've had a good season. It's been fun. They're not going to come into the playoff and all of a sudden, after they couldn't compete with Ohio State, beat Ohio State and then beat Clemson. Oregon couldn't go on the road and beat a 5-5 Arizona State. They're not going to somehow come out in the playoff and beat Clemson and beat LSU. And I'm just using that as an example. But it drives me bananas, this conversation. we got to expand the playoff. Every single year we get to this point with two or three weeks left when two, three, four teams have separated themselves. We have never once, as best I can remember, in the college football playoff era, left a team out that's good enough to win the playoff. So don't believe the hype. Don't believe the narrative. We don't need to expand this thing. It is perfect just the way it is. I do want to wrap up just in where I think the playoff picture is right now. I would still expect, obviously, look, the top four I don't think changes. LSU dominates. They're going to stay at number one. Ohio State's in an interesting scenario because I thought if they dominated Penn State, then there could be a scenario where Ohio State jumps LSU back into the number one spot. That just didn't happen. Credit to Ohio State. They beat a good team at home. It wasn't ever really in doubt but they weren't dominant the way that they would need to be to jump up to number one. So I think they stay at two. Clemson stays at three. Georgia's going to stay at four. Nothing has changed in terms of them being the inflection point of the entire college football playoff. If they win the SEC championship game, they win. They're in. If they lose, they're out. And I got to be honest, I haven't seen anything from Georgia that makes me think that this program is going to go to Atlanta in the SEC championship game and score enough do enough on the offensive side of the ball to beat LSU because this defense is playing great. But if you watch that game against Texas A&M, it was once again the Georgia offense struggling all game long. They got every call imaginable and they still had to hold on to win 19 to 13 at home. I thought it was a, actually a better showing for Texas A&M than it was for Georgia. Texas A&M really played pretty well, didn't get a single call, and was still in the game until the very end. So I don't think Georgia's going to end up being in the mix. If you take out Georgia, it's going to come down to, 
Can Utah get in with one loss? Can Oklahoma get in with one loss? Can Bama get in with one loss? I'll tell you right now, I don't think Oklahoma is going to win out. What I do think is interesting, if you start comparing, if Oklahoma does win out, if they're a 12-1 Big 12 champ against a 12-1 Utah team, that to me is very interesting. Now, I think Utah is the better team. I don't think people realize just how good Utah is. I know that they haven't played the best competition in the Pac-12, but you want a stat? Utah hasn't given up more than 13 points in seven straight games. Seven straight, excuse me, once. One out of the last seven games have they given up more than 13 points. That is an insane stat. I think you could argue they're playing defense right on par with Georgia, right on par with Clemson, and the offense is coming around. I think Utah is actually really good. The one concern that I have for Utah is right now they just don't have the schedule to back it up. They've only played one top 25 team. That was USC, and they actually lost a weird game, by the way, very weird game. And obviously that Oregon loss that I mentioned at the top really does hurt. So Utah, if they're 12-1, and I think they'll be in the conversation. I don't think they were as much of a slam dunk as Oregon because Utah does not have that top 25 win like Oregon does, although they will pick up a nice win against Oregon. Oklahoma, I don't think they're going to win out. But if they do, that would mean two wins over Baylor, a win over Oklahoma State, I actually think Oklahoma's in pretty decent shape to get that fourth number, fourth spot in the college football playoff. Alabama, I still think they're on the outside looking in because here's the bottom line. You have to compare resumes in real time. You have to compare Alabama with Mac Jones at quarterback and without Tua Tonga-Viola. Now look, a lot of it is going to depend on what happens this week in the Iron Bowl. If they dominate the Iron Bowl, if they win 55-3 to with Mac Jones, then yes, they are going to have a very compelling case to get that last spot. I don't think they're going to win, and then, or I don't think they're going to win convincingly. I do think they win, but I think it's, you know, 24-14, to 27-17, to 17, something like that. And then the question becomes, is that win convincing enough that if you put them against a 12-1 Oklahoma or a 12-1 Utah, that Alabama will get in over them? I do think Alabama, I think there are things that Alabama has on their resume that is going to help them. They will have the best loss of any team in the conversation for the playoff. Obviously, you lose to the number one team in the country, LSU. That's a good loss. They will have probably the best loss of any team uh, they, they, they will have the best loss. They will also probably have the best win with that Auburn win. I think that's going to be better um, than some of the other teams that they're competing with. Now, it won't be better than Utah, which will be 12-1 and one and in theory would have a win over Oregon at that point. I'm not even positive it would be better than Oklahoma with their wins over Baylor. It would be a nice win. Alabama's resume argument would basically be this. We won every game on our schedule except for the number one team in the country. Put us in for that. I don't know that that's going to be enough, though, simply because of the fact that, again, they will not have Tua Tonga-Viola. They have to be judged on how they've looked and what they will look like without Tua. I think if Utah continues to play defense like this, I think that they would get in over Alabama. And I actually think Oklahoma still, even though they haven't looked good, they're in good shape because they have a chance to play two more ranked teams, to beat two more ranked teams, and if they do, I do think they'll get in. All right, last little thing before we wrap and transition over to basketball. I do want to talk the situation at USC. I've kind of been 
you know, one foot half in on this stuff throughout the fall. Obviously, look, we all know the deal. Clay Helton has been there. Clay Helton is probably not the long-term answer. Urban Meyer is available. Does Urban Meyer want to come back to coach college football, right? Well, we've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it really since Urban Meyer left Ohio State as the head coach last January. But we're coming to the point now where some real decisions have to be made here over the next two, three weeks. And so here's where we stand with this. And the reason I'm bringing it up today is very simply this. USC is one of the few teams, their season is over. They played UCLA on Saturday. They won convincingly. They improved to 8-4 and four on the season. Their season is over. Most teams are still playing this Saturday. USC is not one of them. They are in the clubhouse at 8-4. and four. And so we've spent so much time kind of talking about, oh, Clay Helton, it's a matter of if and not when. And listen, I'll be honest, I'm guilty of it. I include myself in that conversation. But now that the season's over and you're looking at the 30,000-foot view, here is what I see. I see a program that is in a really, really, really tough position. And I, I can actually kind of equate it to what happened at Florida State this weekend with Mark Stoops, which we'll get into in a minute, is when I look at USC, this is what I see. I see all things considered one of, I think, the four or five best jobs in college football. And I think, look, we can all agree Clay Helton is not the long-term answer. Really nice year, eight and four, but this is a program that expects to compete for and win national championships. It's obviously an improvement. They went five and seven last year, eight and four this year, and now you look ahead to beyond this year and you wonder, okay, is he the long-term answer? Honestly, probably not. Here is where the problem lies, though. Two things. One, you owe him a $20 million buyout. And so one, do you want to pay $20 million for a guy that's actually been pretty good? This isn't Willie Taggart at Florida State that was about to potentially go 5-7. and seven. This wasn't Chad Morris that was about to go 3-9. and 8-4 and four is pretty good. But here's the bigger question. This is how it really equates to Florida State. Are you positive that you can get one of those big-name head coaches? Because I think that is where the, 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 the issue with USC is. And as I said, I'm recording here on Sunday afternoon. Listen, by the time you guys listen to it, there's a chance that Clay Helton could be fired. If that happens, so be it, whatever. But what I'm going to say is this, is that I actually think that USC, they have a new athletic director. I think that this is one of the tougher decisions I've ever seen because I don't think he's the long-term answer. Eight and four is not good enough for this fan base. But if you're not positive, if you don't have 100% assurance that you can either get Urban Meyer, James Franklin, the Penn State head coach, is the other one that's been linked to this job. If you're not 100% sure that you can get one of those two guys I don't think you can fire Clay Helton. I don't think if you're USC, you can just fire an 8-4 and four head coach and go into the coaching market and assume that you're going to get a good coach to come from somewhere else to come coach at USC. And I know it sounds crazy. I know it's USC. But here's the reality of major college football right now. It is really hard to get a good coach to leave a good job, especially with the financials in college football right now. And here's what I mean by this. And I'll use the Florida State Mark Stoops example from this weekend. Report comes out, I guess it was Friday night into Saturday morning, that Mark Stoops had actually met with Florida State to discuss the coaching vacancy. Long story short, Mark Stoops um, meets with him, but he basically says, like, I'm not interested. Thank you for your time. I am no longer a candidate for this job. 
my buddy Matt Jones basically reported this on Twitter. And, and like, unfortunately, this is how it goes for a lot of people is that with Mark Stoops, what ended up happening was Florida State wanted to, to, to shake the bushes on all the big names. Whoever you think the big names are, Florida State wants to pursue them. Only Florida State knows who they're actually interested in pursuing. And they wanted Mark Stoops to stick around. And not only did they want Mark Stoops to stick around, it was going to be really tough to get him to leave Kentucky in the first place because as I told you the day that um, Willie Taggart was fired, Mark Stoops makes $5 million a year. And so you're now talking about a buyout in which you're going to have to pay Mark's, you're going to have to pay Kentucky uh, a lot of money to get him away from Kentucky to get him out of his contract, then you're going to have to top the $5 million a year that he's already making at Kentucky. And so Florida State's just like, look, man, you know, we're willing to consider it, but we got to go with all these other candidates. And Mark Stoops is like, dude, I'm making a lot of money. I'm winning. I'm going to another bowl game. I'm happy. And so Mark Stoops pulls his name out. Florida State now has to move on, but I think that's where USC is. I just don't think that USC can go into the coaching market without a definitive plan we can get Urban Meyer, we can get James Franklin. Because if you fire a coach that just went 8-4, and four, it's going to be really hard to convince another good coach at another good school to leave a job, to come to a job even as good as USC. And then, by the way, financially, are you even going to be able to afford to do it? As like I said, USC would owe Clay Helton $20 million to not coach next year. And then, oh, by the way, they got to pay whoever they're going to get they're going to have to pay him a buyout, and then they're going to have to pay him a better salary than he's already making at his next school. So to me, I just think the USC situation is as fascinating as I have ever seen on the coaching market because I don't think that there is an easy answer here. I don't think it's as simple as saying, you got to get rid of Clay Hilton. He's terrible. Well, he just went 8-4. and four. Two years ago, he went to the Cotton Bowl. Three years ago, he won the Pac-12, and he went to uh, the Rose Bowl, and they, they beat Penn State in the Rose Bowl. I don't think it's as simple as saying, yeah, you got to get rid of Clay Helton. I think you got to get rid of Clay Helton if you know you can get Urban Meyer. I think you got to get rid of Clay Helton if you, if you know you're going to get James Franklin. But if you're going to pay $20 million to get rid of Clay Helton, again, this isn't Willie Taggart. He didn't go 5-7 and seven, uh, this year. He went 5-7 and seven last year. But you're going to have to pay $20 million to get rid of him, and then you're going to go into the coaching market and not be sure who's even available? I think it's one that's going to be fascinating to watch. I know that even on this show, I've been saying that I think Clay Helton's gone at the end of the year. I was definitive that he would be after that Oregon game a few weeks ago. Now I'm really just not sure. I just think it's really hard to fire an 8-4 and four coach if you're not sure who is available, if you can actually get somebody better. This is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. I would add, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch the Florida State situation as well because I think they're going to have a really hard time attracting a top candidate. There was even a report out this week that the school president is already kind of reaching out to donors and saying like, look, we, need, we want to go get that big name for you guys, but we're going to need more money. And I think USC could be in a very interesting situation, very similar to Florida State as they enter the coaching cycle. All right, I want to switch gears over to basketball because, as I said, it is one of the best weeks on the sports calendar. It is Feast Week. 
Thanksgiving week, all these big tournaments. And before we even get to these tournaments, I actually thought it was kind of cool. The last couple of years, ESPN has kind of set up a couple of events before Feast Week to kind of get you excited for the week ahead. Obviously, this coming week, we have the Maui Invitational. We have the Battle for Atlantis. I'm going to preview all those in a minute. But we had two or three really good tournaments this past week. Obviously, the 2K Sports Classic in Madison Square Garden. Duke won. They beat Georgetown. Duke actually looks really good. Listen, we can criticize Duke. We can say that we hate Duke, but they won convincingly uh, against Georgetown. They should be the number one team in the country right now, especially with that win over Kansas to start the year. We also had, obviously, the event in Charleston, Xavier, Florida, UConn. I'm going to talk UConn in a minute because I thought that they were maybe the biggest story coming out of the weekend. And listen, I'm a Husky. For people who don't know, I graduated from UConn. I went to UConn. I grew up in Connecticut. I promise I'm not an arrogant jerk fan. Um, but listen, it's obviously a program that's near and dear to my heart. So I'm going to get to them in a minute. I did want to start with the Myrtle Beach Invitational. Maybe the best game in terms of quality of play that I saw all season long came on Sunday afternoon. It was the championship game of the Myrtle Beach Classic. It was Baylor-Villanova. If you didn't see it, Final score, Baylor 87, Nova 78. Two thoughts there. One, the high-scoring game tells you how good of the, the – how quality – backtrack again for the second time this episode. How good the quality of play was in that game – uh, but also, I think if you saw that final score, you would sit there and say, eh, maybe Villanova's not that good. No, Villanova is that good, but Baylor is also really good. And I will give that team a little bit of credit because that is a team that I picked to go to the Final Four, and they might even be better after watching them two or three times than I thought they were going to be coming into the season, which is kind of incredible. Now, look, I know they lost to Washington, but if you watch that game, it was very obvious that they were the better team for about 36 minutes. They fell apart at the end. Washington came back to win. But Baylor is a phenomenal team, and I like them coming into the season for a few reasons. One, they were really good last year. They finished fourth in the Big 12. They were actually picked to finish ninth. They finished fourth. They won an NCAA tournament game, got to the second round, and they brought back six out of their top nine scores. I don't think what I expected, though, was this. Baylor always plays really good defense, and they are continuing to do so at this point in the season, but they can really score the basketball. This is something, and again, I'm not going to spend 20 minutes talking Baylor-Villanova. It's November. You don't care. I don't know how many of you even watch Baylor, but this is what you need to know. Baylor's a real team. They can compete for the Big 12 title, and what you really need to know is what I just said. They are a lot further along offensively than I expected them to be at this point in the season. And I'm saying this is a guy who picked them to go to the Final Four in the preseason. The thing that I love about them is that they really, and college basketball is a sport, right, where like so often just because of the turnover of players, there's just a lot of times where teams, you have kind of a guy that, that is limited, one, two, three guys on the floor at any given time that is limited, right? Like even you look at a team like Kentucky who had a second straight nice win on Sunday night, obviously after those struggles earlier in the week and last week, but like even at Kentucky, like you get Nick Richard, like, like Tyrese Maxey can score whenever he wants, Emmanuel quickly can score wherever he wants, but Keon Brooks is limited in what he can do and how he can do it. Nick Richards can score, but you have to get him the ball in a certain spot, in a certain place, within a few feet from the basket, or where he can hit a jump hook, or he can hit that little 10-foot jumper. But I bring that up because I look at Baylor, and Baylor is a team that at any given time, 
they got five guys on the on the floor that can score at any point. And I just think that's so rare in college basketball. And that's what stood out to me, even in the Washington loss, but especially in that Nova win. They have so many guys that can get you buckets when you need. And that's just not that normal in college basketball. Like I said, most teams have one, two, three guys. Baylor has five. Their best player is a kid named Jared, but- Jared Butler, 22 points. But Baylor with five different players and double figures. Really quick on Nova. I know they're three and two. I know they, they they lost to excuse me, they're four and two, but they lost to Ohio State a few weeks ago. They lost to Baylor on Sunday. And again, they lost by nine. So if you if you only saw the final score, you'd say, eh, that team, I don't know. I don't know if that team's very good. But what I can tell you is this is that <laughs> they are in fact very good. They've lost to two very good teams, and they are going to be a threat again to be in the top ten for most of the year to win the Big East, to potentially win the Big East, not only regular season, but tournament, and make another deep tournament run. And if you didn't get to a chance to watch Sunday's game, what you basically need to know, they are basically the very quintessential Villanova team. They have a point guard in Colin Gillespie, but then basically everybody else is between like 6'4 and 6'9, and they all look like Villanova basketball players. They can all pass, dribble, shoot, score, take people off the dribble, etc., And what Villanova does so well, I tweeted it out the other day, you watch them, it's just like a two-hour basketball clinic in terms of they are so good with pump fakes, with driving, with pivoting, all the little stupid things that like when you're in third grade and you're doing all those dumb drills and you're yelling at your, your, your CYO coach wondering, coach, why are we working on a pivot drill? Like those are the things that Villanova does so well and it allows them to be so effective. And then, like I said, all of their guys can do it. This isn't a team like where you know they have a, a point guard that always handles the ball and a center who always posts down low. No, man, they got five guys that can all handle the ball, all can shoot, all can dribble. I was impressed this weekend with a kid named Sadiq Bey, a kid named Jermaine Samuels, their freshman, Jeremiah Robinson Earl. For you old school basketball fans, his father was Lester Earl, When I was growing up as a college basketball fan, he's one of the players that I remember he actually played at Kansas. So Villanova loses, but I'm just telling you, watch them all year. They are, uh, they're really fun to watch. Just full disclosure, they're really fun to watch. They do all the things well. I don't know how many guys they have. Kind of the way that I was saying that Baylor has guys that can get you offense at any point. I don't know that Nova's guys can create their own offense, but within the system, Villanova is awesome at what they do. So that was kind of the Myrtle Beach tournament. I want to talk about Charleston. I know that Xavier, Florida was the championship game, but I'll be honest. The story to me was the University of Connecticut Huskies, and I think when we look back, this Charleston tournament and really the last week or so, eight days or so, dating back to last Sunday when they beat Florida at Gamble Pavilion, I think that's where we're going to look back and say, okay, this was the start of the rebirth of the UConn basketball program. And anybody listening to this show, like I said, most of you know, but I'm a UConn alum. I grew up rooting for UConn. And selfishly, I'll be honest, I, I, I think that it's good for college basketball when UConn is good, just like it's good when Memphis is good or Kentucky is good or UCLA is good or UNLV is good. UConn, although they don't have the tradition of a North Carolina or a Kansas or a Kentucky dating back 70 years or 100 years, is a really, really good program with a lot of fans and creates a lot of interest in college basketball when they're good. 
And so I bring it up because obviously, if you watch college basketball, you know that it has been a very tough couple years for UConn fans. And it was striking this weekend because it was only two years ago under Kevin Ollie that UConn would go into games against quality competition and not even like elite competition. I'm not talking about playing Villanova or Virginia or Kentucky or North Carolina. I'm talking about playing Arkansas and Auburn and and second-tier, middle-tier college basketball programs, and they would get annihilated. I mean, you look at UConn in the final year under Kevin Ollie, they were losing by 30 points to a decent Arkansas team. They were losing by 30 points to a decent Auburn team. And so to come full circle, this weekend was what a UConn fan wants to see from its program. Now, you want to see all three wins. They beat Buffalo to open the tournament. They lose a heartbreaker and double overtime to Xavier, who's a top 20 team. But then they won convincingly at Miami. And I bring it up because, first of all, the results are there. Two years ago, they would have lost to Miami by 30 points when Kevin Ollie was was the coach. But also, it's the way that they played. It's the way that they competed. And this was the thing that really kind of stood out to me when watching UConn this weekend. Like I said, when Kevin Ollie was the head coach, the program just was trending in such a bad place. They were losing. They weren't competitive. They didn't play hard. They didn't try. They quit. The body language was bad. Physically, they were overmatched. And what I loved about this weekend at UConn, for UConn, again, two wins. They beat Florida last week and a double overtime loss to Xavier was the way that they played, was the way that they competed, was the fact that we are talking about a program now in UConn that is playing the way that a UConn team should play. And here's what I mean by that. Every fan base, there's a certain way that certain teams have to play, right? Like the way that we expect teams to play. And it's not just in college basketball, it's all over. The Lakers, you have to play, you can't just win championships if you're a Laker. You have to win with flair. You got to win with star power, right? With the New York Yankees, you got to win with star power. With SEC football, it's weird to watch a team like LSU or Alabama score 40 points a game because we're so used to watching SEC teams grind it out. 17-13, 10 10-7 kind of final scores, whereas in the Big 12, right, like you're a, 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 an Oklahoma fan, you expect high-scoring offense. I, and so I bring that up with UConn because to me, UConn, you have to win. You, you can't only win. First of all, you got to start by winning because UConn hasn't been doing that. But to take it a step further, you have to win a certain way, and that certain way is this. UConn fans expect a certain style, and that style is you have to be tough. You have to be physical. You have to be mentally strong. And that's just something that we just have not seen from UConn over the last five, six, seven years. It's not only UConn fans want to win, but even if UConn fans, even if UConn isn't winning, they just want a team that they know is giving it their all and playing as hard as they can and leaving it all on the floor. And that's what's been missing the last couple years, and that's what I saw this weekend from UConn. That Xavier game that I mentioned, they lost in double overtime, but this was a team that fell down at halftime, came all the way back. They actually had the lead. They frankly probably should have been able to win that game in regulation. They don't win it in regulation. They fall way down in overtime, battle all the way back, force a second overtime, 
without a bunch of key players because of foul trouble, they actually take the lead in the double overtime before they lose. And so, again, it's not about breaking down play-by-play and who played well and who didn't and what needs to be improved. It's the fact that UConn battled and they played hard and they defended and they were throwing elbows down low. Nothing illegal, just they're playing physical. And that was the thing that was lacking. And I think that was the thing that was frustrating with UConn fans. It's not only that they weren't winning. They weren't playing hard. They weren't competing. They weren't leaving it all on the floor. And that is something that I saw this weekend. Obviously, UConn capping it with a convincing win over Miami. And again, in previous years, I know Miami isn't a big win. Listen, Miami is not going to be a big win for Louisville. It's not going to be a big win for North Carolina. It's not going to be a big win for Duke. I'm not even saying it's a big win for UConn. But the fact that they played a team that they were better than and just took it to them and it was never competitive, I thought that was a great sign for UConn. I truly believe that they are starting to take the mold of their new head coach, Dan Hurley, who's been there now for a full season and change. Dan Hurley is East Coast, Jersey tough, through and through. You got to outwork, outcompete the opponent. That's what UConn's doing. And I think this was a major step in the right direction. I'll tell you this. I did not think UConn was an NCAA tournament team coming into the season. But with the way they competed against Xavier and the fact that their conference, the AAC, let's be honest, it's, it's going to be a little bit different than we thought. Houston is struggling right now more than we thought. They already have two losses. Cincinnati has not looked as good as we thought. Memphis is a total wild card, which we've talked about over and over and over again on the show. Both times that uh, UConn plays Memphis, James Wiseman will be playing, but you just never know where that team is going to be by that point in the season. All of a sudden, I look at UConn with a win over Florida, a win over Miami. I think these are wins that are going to matter throughout the, the rest of the, the out-of-conference play and into-conference play. And I would say they still have a couple more big games on the schedule and chances to improve their resume overall. They play Indiana on a neutral court in Madison Square Garden in early December. They do play Nova. I'm not <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and lie that I think they're going to beat Nova. That game is in Philadelphia. But again, I think UConn is a team that very much could be in the mix for an at-large team last four in, first four out, kind of in that frame. And I think it really started with this weekend. And I obviously think that it is a great sign as they head into the Big East. The The greatest part about all this is not only that UConn is going back in the Big East, but they are going to be in a position to compete. They have players that look like they belong on the court. They have players that play hard. It's obviously the future is bright. Two of their best players are freshmen, a cook, a cook, and James Booknight, who was just reinstated this weekend. He had a off-season arrest, and I bring that up because those are not two guys that are probably one and done, so they will be back next year. A lot of, lot of, lot of just nice pieces for UConn as they get set to go to the Big East, another good recruiting class coming in, so I think the future is incredibly bright for the UConn Huskies, and I want to wrap with Feast Week because, as I said, this is one of the most to me, it's the most fun week of the year outside of championship week and the first week of the NCAA tournament. We just get wall-to-wall, morning to after midnight, really, 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 really good basketball. Um, and it, does, it just doesn't get better. I mean, we're going to have games in Maui tipping off at 1130 Eastern. You're going to go to work 
feeling awful on Tuesday and Wednesday, and you're not going to do anything at work, let's be honest. You're going to give it a half effort. You're going to get out of there Wednesday. You're going to watch some games. You're going to eat some turkey Thursday, and it is going to be great. And it's because of college basketball. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over some of the bigger tournaments. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each just because, first of all, some of the tournaments aren't that good. But I want to tell you just kind of what you should be watching, who you should be watching out for. I do think it starts with Maui, right? By the time you listen to this, there's a chance that the Maui Invitational will already be underway. It starts on Monday. The first tip-off is 2.30 Eastern time. And I'm going to tell you right now, we got ourselves a doozy in the first one. It is Georgia versus Dayton. For people who don't know, Georgia, they of course have that kid Anthony Edwards. He was the top five consensus recruit in America. He has played insanely well. This is a guy that is going to be a lottery pick, maybe a top five pick in the NBA draft. Obviously the first big uh, recruit of Tom Crean's career. And I think this is where we start to get a feel for, okay, is this going to work out well or is it not? One of my big things from the offseason, if you read my stuff at Kentucky Sports Radio, wherever I'm writing, it's that I kind of felt like I don't believe that Tom Crean is a guy that is going to be able to take advantage of having a big-time one-and-done player. Tom Crean is a guy that likes older players. He develops players. Dwayne Wade played four years for him. Victor Oladipo played three years for him. And I didn't know if Anthony Edwards was going to be the guy that is going to come in and have instant impact. To his credit, he's been awesome. He's been awesome early. But this is where we start to find out is Anthony Edwards for real? Is Georgia for real? They play Dayton. Dayton, to be clear, just so you know, Dayton's got a kid named Obi Topin who is a potential first-round NBA draft pick, and Dayton's a real team. Dayton can make the NCAA tournament, so we will get a feel for how good these two teams are starting the first game of the Maui Invitational. Michigan State, Kansas also in the Maui Invitational. The late-night game is another one to watch out for. UCLA, the first <laughs> the first big game of Mick Cronin's time at UCLA. I was laughing because I just can't wait to see Mick Cronin in a Hawaiian shirt trying to pretend to be calm when we all know that he won't be. And so I think it'll be fascinating. I think it'll be a fun watch. We could have a Georgia-Michigan State semifinal. We could have UCLA-Kansas, which would be awesome. By the way, I'll say this really quickly on UCLA. I actually think they're going to be better than most people. They had a bad loss at Hofstra. Uh, to Hofstra over the weekend, but I, I, I truly believe that this is a team and a program that is going to be better than people think. Mick Cronin inherited a lot of talent. What he needed to do, what uh, what UCLA needed was a guy who was going to push these kids to, you know, basically to make these kids work hard. I talked a lot about Steve Alford last episode. Um, he did not get the most out of the players that he left Mick Cronin, and so I'm fascinated to see how UCLA looks in this tournament. Obviously, the game that we're all hoping for is, of course, Kansas-Michigan State in the final. It'll be interesting to see Kansas, too, after that disappointing start to the season with the loss to Duke. All right, next game, next tournament, I should say. Real quick, I'll tell you a little bit about the Monday-Tuesday Legends Classic. This is what you need to know. The game to watch is the first one on the first night. It's Auburn, New Mexico. You probably haven't seen a bunch of either of these teams, but Auburn looks awesome. Auburn has been one of the best teams in college basketball so far. I've been stunned at how good they look. I'm going to tell you right now, New Mexico, though, they are a potential NCAA tournament team. This is a team, guys, you're going to laugh when I tell you the names that are on New Mexico. 
Carlton Bragg, who began his career at Kansas, is still playing college basketball, and it's at New Mexico. Jaquan Lyle, who began his career at Ohio State, is still playing college basketball at New Mexico. They also have a starter that began his career at UConn named Vance Jackson. They have a guy that started at Texas A&M named J.J. Caldwell. I bring that up because New Mexico has probably more talent than many teams in the Pac-12. They play in the Mountain West. If they are going to get in that large bit, if they're going to be a serious contender, they got to beat Auburn on Monday night. I think that's the most entertaining game in that tournament. And I should mention that the winner of that game will almost certainly get Wisconsin. But again, that is the game that you need to know as you get set to watch the Legends Classic. I'm telling you, that is going to be a good one. All right, last big tournament, biggest tournament, Battle for Atlantis. Listen, I'm Team Maui. I've always been a Maui Invitational guy. I can't lie. The field at Atlantis is just better this year. I mean, I think we're talking legitimately seven potential NCAA tournament teams, which sounds insane. But North Carolina with Cole Anthony, they open against Alabama, which Alabama's struggling. But Alabama, of course, with Kyra Lewis. Alabama, of course, with John Petty. Alabama, we had Nate Oates on this show. Nate Oates said that he believes this is a tournament team. If they're going to start, they better prove it against UNC. And I'd add, UNC better figure out some offense besides Cole Anthony. This is a team that has struggled to score the basketball outside of Cole Anthony. It'll be fascinating to watch this team figure things out over the course of this tournament, and can they survive? If they win that game, they'll probably play Michigan. Don't forget, Michigan coached by Jawan Howard. They've looked good so far. They look like Michigan under John Beeline. John Beeline has left for the NBA Juwan Howard hasn't played well. They look like the old school Michigan. They defend well. They pass well. They move without the ball. We'll see how they look in the bigger picture. Bottom half of the bracket at Atlantis. Um, Gonzaga's in one game. Gonzaga should advance. The second game, Wednesday night. Clear your schedule. Okay, so Wednesday at, I believe it's 5 p.m. is the Maui Invitational Final. And then at 9.30 Eastern time, the final semifinal of the battle for Atlantis, Oregon, who's already beaten Memphis full, at full strength. Oregon is a real team. Oregon is real good. They will play Seton Hall, and we all saw that Seton Hall game against Michigan State. I think those are legitimately two of the top 10 teams in college basketball, and they will be playing in the quarterfinals at Atlantis. The winner will advance to play Gonzaga. Likely the winner of that game will advance to play North Carolina. And I'll tell you, Atlantis is loaded. There's four teams that I have in my top 20 this week. Five, excuse me. Oregon, Seton Hall, Gonzaga, North Carolina, and Michigan. I have all in my top 20 this week. I think at least four of them are legitimate. Michigan has looked good so far. And I'm telling you that Oregon-Seton Hall game, clear the schedule for 9.30 p.m. on Wednesday. You're going to want to watch that game. And obviously, whoever comes out of this tournament with the win is going to have a very impressive resume going forward. Real quick, couple other ones. Thursday, Friday, games on FS1. My, obviously, my parent company, the company that I work for, Fox. Uh, I'll just say this is Texas Tech plays in this game in this tournament first chance we get to see Texas Tech I'm just excited we haven't really seen much of them since last year's final four also the back end of this Creighton which I think is a pretty good Big East team I'll tell you this all they do up and down shoot the ball three-pointers their whole team is guards they basically have no big guys they're a really fun team 
They play San Diego State in the opener. Um, and then the winner will play Texas Tech. So that is a good tournament. I wouldn't be surprised to see a Creighton-Texas Tech final, which will be really fun. And then finally, the last one, Wooden Legacy. Not a great event overall. It's here in LA. I will probably go to the final next Sunday. But what you need to know is Arizona is in that event. Arizona, of course, has Nico Mannion, Josh Green, a bunch of superstar freshmen. Whew. Okay. Another exhausting episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I appreciate you getting through, through it with me. As I told you, uh, I will. We, we will be having more guests. We're going to get Nick Coffee on. I don't want to keep doing these shows that are an hour straight of me talking, but right now there's so much, so just be patient. I appreciate you guys listening, um, and make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, Podcast Addict, Podbean, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find the show. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. I will be posting my top 25 there every single Monday. Finally, if you're going to be in Vegas, make sure to hit me up. Let me know. If you're going to be there for the CBS Sports Classic, Kentucky, Ohio State, UCLA, North Carolina, give me a heads up. I will be there. Almost certainly we'll be doing something fun. Finally, 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 finally. Uh, make sure to find that Amazon link on AaronTorresOnline.com. If you want to help the show, I explained it at the top. I'll explain it again. But ultimately, I just want to thank everybody. I want to thank all of you. We have thousands of listeners every week, and I'm not saying that to brag. That's not some kind of weird, humble brag. But we have a ton of listeners to this show. I want to thank you guys. I want to wish everybody a truly happy Thanksgiving I hope you spend time with your friends, with your family, with your loved ones. I believe this will be the last show before Thanksgiving. We'll probably try to put out a show on Friday post-Thanksgiving. There's a chance we'll do one Wednesday. but re- fourth, or, or, There's a chance one will come out Thursday on Thanksgiving. But realistically, the next show will probably be on Friday. So I want to thank you guys so much for everything you do, for listening, for subscribing, for sharing it with your friends. I have fun doing it. You guys love it. Uh, Shout out to my boy, Torrent Craig. Everybody, I hope you have a great, happy, healthy Thanksgiving. And I will be back. I don't know exactly when. Maybe Thursday, maybe Friday. But if we don't speak before Thanksgiving, I hope you have a great holiday. And I hope you enjoy Feast Week, one of the best weeks in the college basketball season. Later, guys. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. 
to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.